Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rumble with Michael Moore. And I am Michael Moore. This is episode number 170 of this podcast. And today we're going to air part two from our special live recording of Rumble this past Monday, where we celebrated surpassing 25 million downloads in our first 14 months. So earlier this week in that episode, episode that was one episode 169, we published my conversation with rock legend and Pink Floyd co-founder Roger Waters, followed by a discussion with Detroit Congresswoman and squad member Rashida Tlaib. Go back and listen to that if you haven't had a chance. This became the next part of that live episode, what you're going to hear right now. You're going to hear my conversation with a personal hero of mine, the courageous Pentagon Papers whistleblower and peace activist, Daniel Ellsberg. But first up, right here, my conversation with one of our most beloved actors, a proud Michigander, and thanks to the Golden Globes last Sunday, America's newest fashion icon, Mr. Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels, welcome back to Rumble here. Really wonderful to have you with us here tonight. And and thank you for dressing up for me. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, the, the uh, for those who are wondering why we're laughing about that, uh, in case you uh, didn't watch the Golden Globes or didn't see Jeff's name trending all over uh, social media for the last 24 hours, it was because uh, Jeff uh, had uh, uh, decided that he was nominated for Best Actor uh, in a limited series for uh, the Comey Rule, and he played James Comey in that wonderful Showtime limited series and was nominated along with Brian Cranston and Mark Ruffalo and others. Yep, for great people. Wonderful group to be with. And they put up the five nominees on the screen from home. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, you know, people are, they've got a coat on. I think somebody might've had a black tie. Oh, oh not coats, gowns, gowns, oh, no, um, yes. designer suits. Uh, production <laughs> designers were brought in to orchestrate the plants and the lighting and the oh hair and makeup god. was uh, present in people's homes. Oh, oh my god! It was you could just tell that there was a lot of work put into a lot of these Zoom locations. Yes, yeah, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, was spent could have been millions. Yeah, on those gowns, on the hair and makeup, on the lighting, on the everything, and all of a sudden popping up. On the screen when they announced that he's, uh, his nomination, uh, Jeff Daniels. And there you are. Yes. Um, let me just ask. Uh, well, I'll just ask what they would ask you on the red carpet. Uh, who dressed you uh, tonight, Jeff? Uh, Carhartt. You're wearing Carhartt. Carhartt. <laughs> yes. For those which, who. Which was. <laughs> um, I. I, I tweeted it like, you know, an hour later when it, you know, when I realized that I had broken the internet, that, that um, this was a lifelong dream of mine. I have done tons of these red carpets as you have, and sure. you get asked the most inane questions sometimes. Right. Right. And I just didn't think it was important who I was wearing. And I, and I never have done those red carpet interviews. Well, and, and one time I, I forget which red carpet, but they said, who are you wearing? And I just said, Carhartt. And with a, you know, <laughs> straight face. And I got right. nothing. I got, I got nothing from this interviewer. And so, you know, it's always been a dream of mine to go to an award show and, and wear Carhartt. It's what I wear right. at home. Uh, it was a very nice flannel shirt. It was the best shirt I had because I'm on location. I'm in Pennsylvania. Um, we, I ironed it. It was ironed, you know. Right. Um, it was ironed. It looked clean. It, it's very, it was right out of the washer. Um, and, you know, as you know, being from Michigan and certain parts of Michigan, certainly where I live, uh, that passes for elegant. Oh, and, that is dressing up. Sure. Yeah. Fact, and I thought I thought I was meeting all the you know the, requirements. Carhartt is designer. It has the name is right there. Yeah. Uh, now, for people who don't know Carhartt, it's I don't know if it is a Midwestern thing or working. It's class. construction wear. It's Basically, construction. it's what you would wear if you were building a building. And um, correct. Um, Correct. And, you know, so but but for a Sunday night for you, that would not be unusual for you to be in that flannel shirt. Correct. On a Sunday yeah. night. Yeah. On any given Sunday oh, night. Oh, sure. 
which yeah. is when when this awards event occurred. Right. And uh, so the two kind of, you know, worked out great. So the only thing I thought later that would have made it funnier uh, is if when they cut to in the next in the uh, leading actress category, uh, which Jodie Foster won, and they went to her there at her home. She's in her pajamas with her wife. And, yes. And I thought, wow, right now, if I were like directing the show, I would have Jeff walk in with a bowl of popcorn and, <laughs> and, and serve serve them <laughs> their latest batch of popcorn. But Jeff, okay, see, now this is what happens. This is the world we live in now is so focused on something like this. And we only have a, f- a few minutes here on this, on this particular live episode. Uh, and I've already used up five minutes. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. About what, no, no, it's not your fault, but yeah. I did it. I fell to it. I fell to it. And there's so much going on in this country. I haven't talked to you uh, since uh, the election. You were on rumble beforehand. Yep. You, you have uh, in Michigan been a very big supporter of our governor uh, you um, uh, uh, supported her publicly. Uh, did a uh, you you did a wonderful thing actually nationally for uh, before the election to get people out to vote. Um, you know, and and I now that all four of our top leadership positions in Michigan are Democrats, and and both U.S. senators are Democrats, and I think we picked up another Democratic congressional seat. You know, I have been, as you know, uh, begging you for years uh, to run in Michigan for U.S. Senate, for governor. You have brought it up, yes. <laughs> but now there's no more Democratic positions open. No, which is which is what I was waiting for. So now you can you can just stick to the acting. And yes. uh, what are you doing in Pennsylvania? What, what are you, what are you, uh, I'm in a, a week long protocol. I'm going to do a, a series for Showtime uh, called American Rust. That's based on a book by Philip Meyer. So we're, we're, we were going to do it a year ago, almost mm. to the day. And you know, the pandemic hit. And so one year later, we're back and we're going to start shooting next week. But you're, you're working. I mean, when we spoke before uh, you and, and uh, many of us in this uh, industry, not been working, weren't working, and now uh-huh. it's starting to come back a bit. Is that your sense of it? Uh, that uh, some things are getting made now. Yeah, I mean, we're we're still. I mean, the safest place on the planet is the set of American Rust because the protocols and the the, the testing is so thorough. Uh, but um, you know, I've got two doses of Moderna in me. Happily, uh, I am of age. So right. uh, I, I feel better about that. I I, I think uh, I think in 30 days the 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 supply of the vaccine from everything I'm seeing is going to be just ramping up. You know Johnson and Johnson. I mean it by June. Um, but if people do it, I think we're going to be in a better place. And right. I, but that's I'm I'm an actor looking at the internet and watching the news. So what do I know? But it it feels like we're coming out the other end of this thing if people behave and, and they go get the vaccine. And then I think I, I'm, I'm hoping that by the summer, I mean, we're going to shoot through the early August that, that it will be, that we'll get some of the protocols relaxed, but you know, that's up to the guys. That's up to the right, pros. Right. How we're a month and almost two weeks into the Biden uh, Harris era. Um, how are you feeling about things and how, and how, the changes you've noticed. I mean, you're in Pennsylvania right now. Um, I'm just curious how you're personally feeling about um, how the new president uh, has uh, has uh, started his administration. Well, considering how he had to overcome January 6th and and all yeah. of that, um, and 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 the Republicans are still in the news. They're still controlling the news cycle. They're st- they're a minority party now, but. Yeah, that that befuddles me a little bit, but I think I think Biden, like uh, the opposite of Trump, is doing things very quietly. He's getting things done. He's going to work. He's you know he's not going to fix everything in a day. Um, and there's forward progress. Uh, I keep watching the Republicans. I keep watching this show hmm. between Liz Cheney and Kevin McCarthy hmm. and CPAC and. All of those Republicans like that you and I know back in Michigan that are that are where are you? You know, where are you sitting? Are you just going to go default and press the Trump button because you can get your tax cuts? I I, I, got to watch those people to see if um, they break from the people at CPAC. 
that if, is there going to be a break in the Republican Party? I, I, it's hard for people like Nikki Haley to let go of all the Trump supporters because she needs them. And right. you can see them kind of straddling it. And and then Liz Cheney goes to hell with you. You know, right. the Republican right. Party is not going to be that. So I, I'm I'm curious as to where the Republican Party is going to be in six months. In the meantime, you know, Biden and Harris are going to do what they can do. And uh, forge ahead I, I, to the degree that they can. Yeah. I mean, they've got, yeah. you know, I don't know enough about the filibuster to go get rid of it. And I just don't know enough. But I. I, I do know that consider the alternative. Consider if Trump had won in November, yeah, but yeah. That, that's, a, that's a reach. Consider if, if the Republicans had won in Georgia. We're in a right. different ballgame. And right. I, I just think uh, it's time for America to come to Jesus a little bit. You right. know, pick your religion. Right. But, but, are we going to are we going to settle for truth or are we going to settle for lies? Are we going to settle for fact or are we going to settle for fiction? Are we going to obey the rule of law for everyone or do some people get to be corrupt and skate around it? Right. Uh, I think it's I think it's time and that's that's in the Republican party and it's hard to get the get some of them to face that. Yeah. And there were 74 million that voted for Trump. That's there are 74 million people. people out there. That's right. That's right. There's a yeah. lot of people. And yeah. to think that this is just going to go away, um, you know, systemic racism has been with us for 400 years, ever since the first slave got off the ship in Virginia. And right. it came over with them on the Mayflower, for God's sake. And that's that's baked into the cake. And yeah. Um, yeah. there are people that are going to hang on to that. And uh, that's yeah. what worries me. My hope is that if uh, Biden and not just the politicians, but, you know, all the rest of us who wanted this change to occur, who wanted Trump to go away, um, that if if we're able to do enough things to show people, look, you don't have to become a Democrat. Yes. Ever, don't ever call yourself a liberal. Just how about this? How about not having to worry about losing your house if you get sick? Right. We'll fix that for you. So that'll never happen. How about your kids being able to afford to go to college? We'll we'll do that, and we'll do it for you too, not just for our kids, but your kids too. Maybe if we do enough of that, if if they if somebody making seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour in those unlike Michigan and some states, we've already raised the minimum wage. But uh, I think there's twenty nine states that have done that, but uh, you know the others haven't. Just imagine if your pay was doubled. What would your life be like? Be like, uh, you know what what if what if women were paid the same as men? What if, what if you as a woman or your wife is making a dollar less an hour than this guy doing the same job right next to her? You know, what would you do with that 40 extra dollars a week? I mean, that's the way I've been trying to present it. That, that okay, we know you don't like Democrats and liberals and Michael Moore, but uh, I'm willing, I'm going to go, I'm going to go the extra yard or two or a hundred for you. You too. I want you to benefit. And maybe, Jeff, just enough will we'll see, you know what? Okay, these guys aren't so bad. I'm making more money. My wife is paid the same as men, the men at work. I mean, yeah, that's exactly. That's a great point. Yes. But that's going to take a year. That's going to take six months to a year of Biden stuff yes. to coming through yes. for them to go, wait a minute. Now, maybe I was, I don't want to say lied to, but maybe I was conned. You know, right. and they might they might come come to it a little bit. I think what's also going to help is seeing Trump walk into a courtroom and and, and the facts all of that. coming out. Now, yes. it may it may jumpstart some people that get even angrier about that. But I think, you know, that's who you're backing. He's yeah. just going into the yeah. courtroom and there's a pretty good chance, you know, whenever that happens, that he's not going to be coming out. And then yeah. where are you? Yeah. So, um over the I'll, I'll be like I said, I'll be watching a lot of things over the next six months to a year. And those are those are those are three of them in particular. When when do you think you'll be back in Michigan? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, a couple I mean, of weeks. Oh, okay. You're just in Pennsylvania just for this. Yeah, I'm I'm like in Pittsburgh. I'm back and forth. Yeah, I'll be back. It's okay. a great gig. I mean, I if I have yeah. four days off, I'm like, oh my God, I can drive home. I couldn't do that on newsroom. No, no. <laughs> That's right. The uh but that's um, yes, Pittsburgh. What is that? I know from Flint, it's about like four and a half hours. I think 
Mm. It's not five if you five bring dogs and you well, got to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't have dogs and uh, I never need to stop. I see. I see. Okay. <laughs> I won't go into that. We had a scene in Dumb and Dumber with, yeah. with some empty bottles, but I won't go any further. Right. Uh, but but thank you for referencing Dumb and Dumber, as we often do here on Rumble. So, uh, uh, Jeff, I really appreciate you uh, uh, just uh, popping into this here uh, to celebrate our 25 millionth download of this uh, podcast. And, uh, and, 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 you know, you're one of my favorite people. You're a good friend. Uh, and I was so grateful that earlier in this first year that you came on the, the podcast uh, and participated in this. Uh, so, Oh, I think it's a great thing. 25 million of anything is a great thing. Congratulations. <laughs> Yes. Uh, well, thank you. And and keep doing uh, the great work that you do and keep caring about this wonderful country uh, as I have seen you uh, do over many, many years. So I appreciate oh, that. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, my friend. Uh, thank you. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Daniels. Before we uh, bring on Daniel Ellsberg, I want to welcome a new underwriter to Rumble, Amazon Studios, and their very powerful documentary film, All In, The Fight for Democracy. All In was uh, directed by uh, Liz Garbus and Lisa Cortez, and it documents the brilliant Stacey Abrams and her Herculean efforts to fight the racist voter suppression. Yes, this is the Stacey Abrams film that you've been hearing about. And I have to tell you, it's incredible. And Stacey Abrams also serves as a producer of this film. All In also shows the long and ugly history of voter disenfranchisement in this country and how it currently threatens everything that we hold dear today. My friends, we are the majority of this country, but we will keep losing elections as long as one major political party is committed to the elimination of our voting rights for our fellow citizens. Democracy is something that we must actively and ferociously fight for, or else we won't have one. And this movie, All In, The Fight for Democracy, explores these fundamental questions. Who gets to participate in our democracy and who does not? Most importantly, it demonstrates how we can fight back. It actually gives you solutions that you and I and every other person can do to protect the democracy of this country. And it's no surprise to see all the accolades that this film has been piling up, including nominations from the Writers Guild of America for Best Documentary of the Year, the NAACP Image Awards, the Hollywood Critics Association, and most recently, this film has been shortlisted by Academy members for the Oscars for Best Documentary. So I want to urge all of you to watch All In, The Fight for Democracy. It's available now on Prime. I'll have a link to the film in the description page of this episode. And I personally want to thank Amazon Studios, not just for supporting this podcast and supporting my voice and supporting filmmakers like Liz Garbus and Lisa Cortez, but for all the good work that Prime does in supporting documentary nonfiction film at a time when we need nonfiction more than ever. And I thank uh, Amazon Studios for helping me bring my voice to the millions who have been listening to this podcast in this first year. And we're really lucky today because this episode, celebrating our 25 millionth download, it not only has another underwriter, the other underwriter is Amazon Studios for another incredible documentary that they put out there this year and another one that has been shortlisted for the Oscars. And this powerful and beautiful documentary is called Time. Time is the feature documentary debut of a talented young filmmaker. Her name is Garrett Bradley, and she has accomplished something profound here. She has made both a beautiful love story but also a powerful and devastating film about America's cruel and racist prison industrial complex. The film tells the story of a woman named Fox Rich, who has spent the last two decades of her life campaigning for the release of her husband, Rob 
G. Rich. He's serving a 60-year sentence for a robbery they both committed in the early 90s in a moment of desperation. Bradley paints a mesmerizing portrait of the resilience and radical love necessary to prevail over the endless separations caused by this country's mass incarceration epidemic. So let me mention just a few of the places that have already given this film awards for either Best Documentary, Best Director, etc. The Gotham Awards of New York City, the Doc NYC Film Festival, the Sundance Film Festival, the International Documentary Association Documentary Awards, the New York Film Critics Circle, the Los Angeles Film Critics Circle, the National Society of Film Critics, the Full Frame Documentary Film Festival, and the Zurich Film Festival. And as I said, it's now just been recently shortlisted for the Academy Awards. So do yourself a favor. Watch this movie. It's called Time. Watch it this weekend on Prime. I'll have a link to the film right here on the description page of this episode. And again, I want to thank Amazon Studios for supporting me and this podcast, My Voice, and supporting the work of talented filmmakers like Garrett Bradley and her excellent film, Time. I've uh, actually just been told that we have with us uh, the individual who was our second guest, second guest on on Rumble back on, uh, I believe, the 14 months ago. And geez, I guess it's all now it's March. Man, time flies. Well, we were so happy to have him on then. Uh, He has been a hero of mine uh, since I was a teenager. He worked inside the government and he had served in Vietnam and he saw the lie firsthand and couldn't live with it and had to tell the American people and had to get the evidence that he knew that the United States government had compiled over the years in terms of as they built the lie about how we had to go and win in Vietnam for our our security, which was all a fraud. And a lot of people, a lot of us at that time knew it was, but we didn't have the goods until he went and got the goods and made sure that it it uh, appeared in many newspapers around the country, most notably the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post. But uh, uh, he was with us at the beginning of Rumble some 14 uh, months ago, and he is with us here tonight. Please, uh, all of you watching, give a v- warm virtual welcome to the great Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel. <laughs> Michael, Michael, I was your second guest. I have to ask, who was the first? Nobody. I was. (laughs) You actually were the first. You were on the second episode. The first episode was just me explaining to people what Rumble was going to be. Just, just a little kind of brief introduction. And then the first person we put on was you. You were the first, first voice. And then the next day, Congress was going to vote on impeaching. Donald Trump, the first impeachment. And we just said, God, what, you know, we should just get on the train right now. And we went down to DC, like on no notice, got on an early morning train and, and we got into the uh, gallery, into the balcony. And we sat there and watched the final debate and the vote. And we had our, our recording equipment with us and um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let us use it uh, there, you know, because the floor of our Congress is sacred. Oh, Oh, you know, oh, back in those, oh, those oh. days. And so um, so we recorded the podcast on that Am, that last Amtrak out of D.C. that has so many people, so many government officials coming to New York at night. Uh, I've, I've, I've ridden that train for many years. Uh, I have sat across from the FBI director. I sat across from Colin Powell all through the years. And on this night, it was uh, impeachment night. But the night before, it was you. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you, and it was just, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've, you know, we don't see each other a lot, you and I, but I've known you over many years, many movements, many protests. Um, you have been this force for good. You've, you've been a guiding star, uh, to all of us. You took risks that, uh, well, what you did is what they're hoping, uh, to put, uh, certain people in jail for. 
who told us the truth about the Iraq war, who took documents and, and, and gave them to the New York times and the Washington post. You're right. You're right. You're right. And yet, yeah. And yet look at, look at the, look at the threat uh, that, that uh, Ed is uh, facing and, and others, even no matter how you feel about Julian Assange, I mean, certainly nobody was angry at him for telling us the truth and getting those documents. However, WikiLeaks got them. We finally learned what Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld were up to. And, and history now will record the illegality and the immorality of that invasion of Iraq. And, and, and we wouldn't have had that had it not been for WikiLeaks and, and Assange. And I know I say that, and then, you know, a lot of people are, oh, yeah, look what he did to Hillary or whatever. And, you know, that story is yet to be told. And, um, and someday, the piece of it I know, I will tell that story. And I think people are going to be pretty surprised. Nonetheless, in your day, you did this. And I would imagine when you took the Pentagon Papers and made sure that they were read by the American people. <laughs> no, that's another matter. <laughs> Getting them read? I uh, don't think I succeeded in that. But they sold, New York Times sold a lot of books. Anyway, on a bantam. And yeah, there was a lot of discussion, but getting them read uh, a little too much. <laughs> you mean because the because the volumes of them were it was too much to. Well, put. people in government don't read things to start with in the government. In the public, they do, of course. But there was four thousand pages that I put out, and three thousand I didn't put out, except to Congress. But um, well, whatever uh, got whatever got published, I read as a teenager. <laughs> this is we're talking nineteen seventy one here, right? Correct. Correct. And, how old were you? Uh, in 71, I was a junior in high school. Uh, okay. So, so yeah. you know, yes, I was 16, 17 years old. You're older than I thought, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always yeah. interested in generations to see what, yeah. what history people lived through. Yeah, you've been around longer than I realized. But well, you know what? I first met you when you, were you. In, when you were brought in as the blue-collar working-class rebel up browser uh, for Mother Jones. And uh, I was very sorry to see you leave that, but you you made very good use of your life after that. Right, right, right. Good. No, thank you, for, <laughs> thank you for saying that. I remember uh, speaking, to, oh my God, to, to you. Um, I, I met with so many people, Jim Ridgway, who sadly just passed away, uh, Alex Coburn. Um, uh, uh, I remember meeting with Abby Hoffman. Uh, to, but yes, that, that job did not last long. Uh, there, I had a, a series of disagreements with the uh, owner of, uh, of the magazine and, and it only lasted a few months. And I think that was supposed to have been the end of me. Nobody was going to hear from me again. Well, so I, 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 lucked, I lucked out. <laughs> yeah. We all, looked, we all looked out. I'll, uh, I'll never forget your, your Oscar speech. When you talked about to a vast audience here that we had gone down a rabbit hole, wasn't that your wasn't yeah. that your line? And we had a fictitious president uh, at that time. Boy, you didn't know what fictitious uh, was yet at that. I could barely right? I could barely pronounce it. I George W. Bush. George W. Bush was elected with fictitious election results. Yes, that's what I said on the stage, and I think I've pointed out. I, yeah, I, got, booed, I, I, I got booed off. I used to think of it for, for years. I talked about trying to tell people what our problem was as I newly saw it, that we had to understand this is a country that almost elected George Bush, George W. Bush, twice. <laughs> twice. And, um, and now, of course, Trump just the other day announced that he's going for a third win. Uh, there was, listen, had we been, if 20,000 or so, I've heard, maybe it's 50,000, Votes had gone differently in the swing states. We would be talking tonight uh, with with uh, Trump actually in the White House. That's correct. And yeah. Um, yeah. that imagine what our conversation would have to be at that point. You know, I really admired. I, I was loved hearing your previous guest. Not only what he was saying was so yes. optimistic, but you know his spirit and energy. Yes, and yours too. And I was thinking. Would it be possible to talk like that if we had uh, if we had Trump as our president right now? As seventy four, well, uh, a fraction of the seventy four million think he is basically. You know, he's our legitimate president. So we're we're living in a country uh, 
talking about fictitious, uh, fictitious things or hoaxes or frauds, we're living in a country with a mass delusion in front of us that we can really perceive. You know, would we have thought, is it possible for 50 million people to be that crazy, that divorced from reality? 70, 74 million, 74 million huh? voted for Trump, 74 million. Yeah, you know, I think of it that in a way, uh, if they watch Fox News, which Patricia and I do from time to time, I say, look, we got to look at Fox as yeah. your previous program. You can't just look at MSNBC all the time. Right. Well, we last usually about three minutes, but it's enough when we turn the channel to Fox. But it's enough to realize if this is your main source of news, and uh, why, and, and you're listening to your president and his tweets, and you elected him, you voted for him, why wouldn't you believe? that he was elected and that Biden is not really our legitimate president and so forth. How could you believe differently? It's it's their universe that they live in. They didn't just make this one all up. That lets them a little bit off the hook. But it raises a question that I haven't seen raised too much about the January 6th insurrection, whatever it was, which is, if you truly believe that these senators inside are about to certify somebody who actually was not the legitimate president, who had been deprived, what should you do? Well, you shouldn't beat policemen to, to death or, or at all, you know, or beat them at all with American flags. You shouldn't break glass, et cetera, et cetera. But people haven't asked, um, well, what should they do? Just sit back and, and watch? So that's a problem we face. It's, it's, very, it's not unlike the Civil War right now in the sense that uh, not fully half the country, but a large part of the country is living in a different different universe of values uh, and beliefs and expectations. And with that, it's not easy for me to be quite as optimistic. We don't have false hope or false optimism. We Our eyes are wide open and we know what we're facing. But you bring up this point that we would be sitting here tonight in a different frame if and i have the exact numbers for you here um it's almost almost it's just a difference of forty thousand. trump won the electoral college in 2016 with seventy-seven thousand vote difference where he won when he won michigan pennsylvania and wisconsin just seventy-seven thousand votes if people had changed would have made the difference this time biden won by three states wisconsin arizona and georgia with almost only 40,000 votes, 40,000 votes, yeah. 77,000 four years ago, just a 40,000 vote difference uh, this time in just those three states. And you asked the question, what would tonight look like? Uh, the, our our uh, little celebration here of our 25 million downloads. I got to, I got, I want to say something I have not said publicly uh, because I felt like I knew the answer to that question, and I and others who, um, let's just say, have been on Trump's list for a number of years uh, because we stick it to him in the in the worst possible ways as far as he sees it, and we are relentless about it and have been relentless about it. And we, in the months leading up to the election, uh, talked about this. And I would say that there was a a consensus amongst us that um, his enemies list, if he were to be reelected, he was not just going to sit by and let us get away with what we said and did to him and about him. And um, I won't say, I'm not going to name names here, but some had made their plans if they needed to have a plan B to get the hell out of Dodge um, because we knew Trump would seek revenge and he would have the power of the state and the military and the police. Most police departments endorsed him for his reelection. And a number of us had to hire security thinking if it went one way on election night, well, actually if it went either way, whether he lost and there would be an uprising like we saw on January 6th, or if he won, his his minions would be out looking for blood and revenge for those who dare to stop their king. And this was on our minds. This is, was no joke. Would we be sitting here tonight? Maybe. And maybe not. 
had he won. I don't ever want to get that close again well, to finding out. Yeah, and so we really have to think hard how we how we avoid that. And really, I don't think we, you and I, anybody that I know knows enough yet, knows enough of how we got right where we are. And where we are, as you say, is a country that really did almost elect almost elect Trump in the Electoral College, which is, which is, why isn't there a bigger move to, to get rid of the Electoral College after this? It still doesn't. Absolutely. Happen. No, but it should be at the top of the agenda. Seriously, uh, we have to get but, rid of it. But the... Um, and the filibuster. When you mentioned when you were mentioning later, you earlier here that you were on the last Amtrak out of Washington at a certain point. Well, that Amtrak out of Washington, out of D.C., would have had a lot of people we know, friends of ours, I guess, on that, and going further than uh, than uh, Philadelphia or, or Boston. But uh, you say, what what would it be like? Well, let me go to what I think is is the number one thing. I don't think that civilization, going big here now, would fail to show the harm that another four years of Trump maximizing fossil fuel emissions, maximizing extraction, new lands, uh, offshore, Arctic, Antarctic, um, everywhere he goes, uh, doing everything he can you know, with subsidies to increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere in his four years. Well, we've got a window here, as Greta Thunberg has been saying for a couple of years now, pointing out simply, that in theory, it's 2030, we should be reducing those emissions by 50%. And uh, according to the specialists in the UN, the experts, and be out of it by 2050. Now, is that going to happen? No, I, I really don't think that's going to happen, which means that we're in, not for the ultimate catastrophe, we're in for catastrophic uh, change, I would say, baked in right now. But, but with Trump for four years more and possibly somebody asking him, uh, as I say, the, uh, <laughs> the world climate would show the scars of that forever as far as humans are concerned, thousands of years. And we, we couldn't afford that. Let me leap right up to the present. Biden, an enormous difference there, has a plan that in scale is, um, is, is on mark, pretty much a couple trillion dollars. I'm not talking about the stimulus plan, but the climate plan has, uh, I'm told by friends of mine who are experts, like Robert Poland, uh, that, uh, it, yeah, the scale is about right. But the allocation of interest, uh, of, uh, of energy, no, actually not. You know, so much on uh, carbon capture and on cap and trade, the various, oh, and on, you know, new technologies of things that are, may or may not come in. Actually, no, we can't afford even a plan as much better than Trump's as Biden's. It's got to be better. We don't have time to fool around with things that are extremely inadequate. But, you know, the difference is, uh, is enormous. And we, we just dodged a bullet on climate and on other things. The thing you were pointing to, Michael, was fascism. It's not just that he has a little list like uh, Nixon, I guess. You were probably on that. I was on that, the enemies list. But uh, the, it would be very, very wide and uh, broad. I think people like us wouldn't be on the air, actually. And... Um, I was particularly worried, by the way, that this is yet another subject, that he would attack Iran in order to distract attention at the last. That's where my attention was focused for the last couple of months. I'm very glad. I think we got by that very narrowly. And that would be a catastrophe even worse than Iraq and Vietnam and Afghanistan altogether. Even though it, it didn't become a nuclear war, and he was threatening uh, North Korea before he fell in love with Kim, uh, with the, you know, the uh, fury the world has never seen with nuclear weapons. The idea, which apparently is his appointee, John Bolton, favored of an attack on North Korea is as close to insanity as you can get. Well, right. you know, as close, you know, it's, it's attacking Russia, you know, so China would be that much more. But yes, this would be a um, this would be a limited war. When you say you can't win a nuclear war, 
you know what, in, a, in some sense or other, in various senses, we would have won, won a nuclear war against North Korea, but at the cost of millions, millions and millions of dead in, uh, in North Korea, to start with, including South Koreans yeah. and even Japanese. But in this country, all that Kim or now has to do is have a boat with a nuclear device in it offshore Los Angeles and San Francisco and a couple of ports in um, in the north co west coast uh, east coast no big problem for him and again you're talking about millions of deaths so <laughs> well, we, we dodged we dodged a lot of yeah. yes we dodged a lot of bullets i i agree with you though i'm not so sure we dodged uh, the environmental bullet. I, I, I think. Yeah, uh, no, by no means. No, and in fact, some say we may have blown it. We may have, we may have gone too far. We were warned years and years ago by that scientist at NASA and others that we only had so much time. Yeah. And they kept talking about, oh, let's have these accords and we'll have till 2050. And I'm like, are you crazy? And but. I, you know, this is another whole episode that we did this year on our environmental movement has gotten into bed with uh, corporations at Wall Street and won't denounce capitalism in the sense that how so many of these decisions are being made for profit and for greed. And Greta comes along and gets right in every adult's face with it, which I'm so grateful for her, um, you know, standing up uh, to the adults and saying, look at the world. You're leaving me. In my generation, and it's um, it's uh, it's disheartening. It doesn't mean we can't give up, but it, it, someday I'd love to talk to you about this because I think we we either need some kind of new leadership or a new direction or whatever. Because of all the movements of the 50, 60 years where you've been involved, we have made progress when it comes. Uh, to stopping wars. We've made progress when it comes uh, to women's rights and to race. And we're not anywhere near where we need to be. Don't get me wrong on any of this. But there have been steps. There have been steps forward. I, Other than at the very beginning with Earth Day, we got the EPA, we got the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. Man, there has been hardly anything since then. And, and if anything, reversal, going backwards. Look, I'm very happy to have met a hero of mine, Greta Thunberg, in Sweden, actually. I yeah. stood with Patricia oh, and I wow. with her in, in front of the parliament there on a very snowy day with about 60 people. Within months, she had several million people, yeah. not 60, yeah. uh, school mostly kids. Young, mostly young people. Yeah. Mostly young people. Yeah. I mean, really young, grade school, high school. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, then within a year, she had about 15 million people around the world. So on the one hand, you could say, um, wow, you know, this is very inspiring. As it is, this shows what you can do, what one person can do getting it started, and then a lot of other people. But she, their other quality is to be extremely candid and forthright, as she was in front of all these grown-up people at Davos and the UN and elsewhere in parliaments. She doesn't uh, hold back, and she says the measure of what's happening here is not how many people we have yet in the streets, but the fact that emissions are going up. They are not going down. That is the measure. And she would be the first to say, I, I am sure, the first to say right now, it hasn't done it. It hasn't helped. We, it is going up. This is not happening. And uh, as, I, as you were saying, the uh, actually the, the Biden plan, of course, is enormously different. It is a, a plan in the right direction. But if it's far from adequate, that's not good. Is that oil going to actually stay in the ground that, that Exxon owns and that Chevron owns and that Aramco owns? Is it really going to stay in the ground and they don't make uh, any profit out of it? They write it off as some costs and so forth. I'll tell you, I think, as I see probabilities, if I were going to, I, I don't see it. I don't think that's going to happen. And that means total uh, catastrophe ahead of us for uh, not just for our grandchildren. It's for us and our children, not for me, uh, probably, but uh, every, even my own children who are, who are not young. And I think what I find myself doing is acting as if it were still possible to do this. And and that has, has come, worked out 
in the past. It looks to be impossible, but then mm. impossible things have happened in the past. You know, you. it turns out you're old enough, Michael, I remember now, to remember what a miracle it was, a secular miracle for the Berlin Wall to come down. And yeah. by a miracle, I mean, that wasn't looked at, let's say, in 83 or 84. Mm. That wasn't looked at as unlikely or even very unlikely. It was impossible. It was unthinkable that the Berlin Wall would come down in 1989. No chance of that. Mandela coming to power in, without a violent revolution in yeah. South Africa, yeah. not possible. So these things can happen, usually in very unexpected ways, uh, and it, it keeps us going. But I think two things, uh, I can't bring myself to be inspiring in the form of saying, we can do it. You know, it'll happen if we just turn our minds to it. I'm afraid uh, I, I, that's not the way it is. That's not the way life is. And all I can say is, uh, unlikely as it seems to happen, to work, everything is at stake. And uh, yes, it is worth your, your life's work. It's worth your any, any risk or cost you might take to try to uh, keep it going. So you do have this optimism in you. How, how old are you now? <laughs> if you call that optimism. No, well, no, how uh, old are you now? Uh, I'm only, uh, I'm 89. Actually, I'll be 90 on April 7th. Okay, but, so you're uh, still young. You're still in your 80s. <laughs> uh, but no, but seriously, but it's it's so heartening, though, to hear you say that you still believe it's worth the fight, that we shouldn't give up. Yep. And um, and we need to hear that because we have lived and gone through now another dark time. And 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 we are cooped up in our homes by and large uh, by uh, this uh, deadly virus that was ignored and we were lied to about it and we're so far behind on trying to contain it now. Um, so I, I I mean I can't thank you enough for what you've done, uh, your life's work, what you said here tonight on this occasion uh, for our podcast. Um, it's <laughs> I'm. Uh, can I yeah. tell you the dark side, <laughs> the, yeah. bad, the bad news? Leave, um, us, leave us on a good bad news note. <laughs> well, we haven't talked about nuclear weapons and nuclear oh, war man. and the possibility not of warning, which is on the way, warming, but the cold, the nuclear winter that would come if our, the stockpile that Obama paid for and Trump increased and Biden has shown no inclinations to reduce whatever, uh, the DOD budget as a whole, but specifically the intercontinental ballistic missiles that should not have existed for the last half century, if ever. Right. Uh, absolutely. Still going ahead because Northrop Grumman uh, needs to uh, keep its assembly lines going. And we're not showing any sign of backing away from that. So with that and the racism that has been exposed, and to me, at 90, I think Charlottesville, just four years ago, uh, started me investigating how what's going on here in a way that made it what happened just now in the election, 74 million people, a little less surprising, you know, as, as a fault in this country. So it comes down to uh, my, my attitude toward this country and uh, what the obstacles are in the country. As a friend, an old friend of mine, William Gibson, who was a playwright, um, used to say, um, sometimes the audience is the flop. And the audience is part of the problem here. The, the, uh, the public here is part of the problem. And we've, we've got to see that. So with the things I've learned from these last, all these years, I think of two things. Um, one is I, I had a favorite book when I was a kid. Maybe you read it, uh, Scaramouche by Raphael Sabatini. And I always remember the first line about Scaramouche. He was born with a gift of laughter and a sense that the world was mad. Hmm. And, you know, each year that goes by, we're looking right now you know, at, at our commander of strategic command, uh, Charles Richard and Admiral, talking about this year under Biden, we must be prepared to fight a nuclear war with Russia and China. I say, fight a nuclear war, right. Uh, in other words, we must be prepared for omnicide, for killing nearly everyone. That, yeah. no, not if we, not unless we have to, but only if we have to. We have to prepare for that, which we have been doing for 60 years, and we're still at it. So I was uh, 
I don't know. You know, you know Mike Tyson, uh, you remember, he, you know him. In fact, you, you just fought a demonstration fight, right? And he was the first, he was the youngest uh, heavyweight champion. Very long time heavyweight champion. He has the hardest punch uh, of anybody, practically one of the, one of the hardest. Very, very hard childhood. And he was, but he was in prison twice. So once for rape and for other things. And he, he always regretted publicly that he hadn't killed anyone in the ring. That way he, he was envious of somebody who had. And so Customato, his manager, uh, who had actually adopted him as a uh, guardian, legal guardian, had a very hard yes. childhood. And Customato said of him, Mike Tyson has his good points and his bad points. It's his bad points that aren't so good. And I've, I've had, that's the way I think, I'm, I'm sorry to say, of my country and of the human species right now, the human species. We have our good points and our bad points aren't so good. And uh, that's, that's where we are. And keep at it. We're on the Titanic, heading into uh, ice field, a dark night, full speed ahead. And uh, on climate, we may have hit the iceberg, but we don't know. And we just have to, the Titanic could have stopped as other ships did. The Titanic could have changed course. But as you mentioned, for profit, they wanted to sell, set a speed record, which they hadn't even advertised, but they wanted to surprise people with the fastest thing. So they couldn't afford to go south or stop when they got the warning that there was ice ahead, full speed ahead in the dark. Well, that's where we're going. So it's our, it's our job to turn this ship around. Right. I believe that. And that's what we're going to do. And I know it won't be easy. And I'm glad you're still here with us to help us turn that ship around. So thank you. Thank you, thank Daniel. You. Thank you, thank Michael. You. Now, it, um, uh, I'm deeply honored that you came on uh, tonight. Uh, they just they had just texted me here 20 minutes ago and said you were you were waiting to come on. And it was like, oh, wow. Daniel, thank you. Uh, and please stay in touch with us and come back on. on you you showed us the rabbit hole we're in, and you're the you're our guide out of it, Michael. Thank you. No pressure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Daniel Ellsberg. If you miss the train I'm on, you will know that I am gone. You can hear the whistle blow a hundred miles. Well, that's it uh, for Rumble today. A wonderful episode. Two great guests, Daniel Ellsberg and Jeff Daniels. My appreciation to both of them for what they've done and for joining us on hitting this benchmark of 25 million downloads of this podcast. I'm absolutely incredible. Thanks to all of you who've been listening for these last 14 months. And I just want to say, just thinking about what he said earlier, Daniel Ellsberg, he was right. It is our job to turn this ship around. We've got a lot in front of us here. You know, we got good news this week that, that every adult will be vaccinated by the end of May. I mean, I don't know how you felt when you heard that the other day. That was, you know, was it Tuesday? It was just, it, it was such a high. And then, and then that night, the governor of Texas announces that he's getting rid of the mask mandate. You don't have to wear a mask anymore. And got rid of the social distancing mandates. Crowds can gather 100%, as large as possible, doesn't matter. And it was, oh my God, did you feel the way I felt just like, like so high earlier in the day hearing that everybody's going to get vaccinated by the end of May, which is just a little over than two months from now. And then Texas and, and then like 15, 16 states joined him right away, joined Governor Abbott in getting rid of their mask mandate and their social distancing mandates. So now there's 17 states that are wanting to pretend somehow either that, yes, as they said for how many months, that COVID-19 was a hoax or suddenly the pandemic is over 
and everybody can go back to the way we were doing things. And this will undo all the good work that the vaccinations are doing. So I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do about Texas and Mississippi and Florida, Iowa. There's 17 of them. You know, on one hand, you just want to say, well, okay, you know, you don't want to abide by the same rules the rest of us are abiding by in order to save lives, then, um, you know, right now we're still short of this vaccine here, right? This week, next week, Um, you know, you don't think it's, uh, you don't think your people need it, Governor Abbott? Okay, then we're going to use it in places where people do need it and do believe that this is real and it's not a hoax. Yeah, you wouldn't like that, would you? No, no. And, And frankly, the argument actually can be made the opposite of that is that we need to figure out a way to vaccinate every single person in Texas and Mississippi and Alabama and Montana, Idaho, if we could do that. I don't know how you would do that, but it's it's like because the individuals in those states who are refusing to cooperate and won't wear a mask, well, wouldn't we feel better if they were vaccinated? At least that, you know, how do you, I don't know how you make these leaps and the, over these hurdles of stupidity. It's not really just stupidity though, is it? It's a political statement on their part. It's a weird political statement when you think about it, that they, they know that their, their time is up of ruling over everybody else. So you'd think they'd want to make sure they live a little longer, why they would make decisions that would may bring about the end of their, their lives over 500 million dead. You know, I've seen a a number of things in my lifetime, starting from the month I was born, the first polio vaccinations in Pittsburgh, Dr. Jonas Salk. But, you know, there have been, I don't know, 50,000, 40, 50,000 people that have died of polio. A lot of them were kids. But that's 50,000, not a half a million. I mean, all the tragedy I've seen in my lifetime, Americans sent to Vietnam to die, you know. 58, 59,000, not a half a million. You know, awful weather changes that have taken place and the hurricanes and the, and the, and the um, snow and the cold down south last month. Not a half a million dead. This, this is the biggest, biggest mass death that we've had to witness in our lifetime. And We need to bring it to an end. We need to contain it. And we can't do it by ourselves. We have to do it with the people that voted for Trump. What do we do to convince them? (laughs) Tie them down and give them their shot? (laughs) We can't make them wear a mask. We'd have to follow them around all day, make sure they never took their mask off. That's not going to happen. I don't know. How did we get people to stop smoking? Just as I... I brought up here the other day and just there's there's we don't have a choice because this has to end and we have to save lives and um, ignorance and stupidity and wrong-headed right-wing political fantasies are not going to save lives well there's the challenge in front of us they are our fellow Americans, so um, somebody is going to help me here, right? We're going to figure out how to do this. Um, I want to thank our executive producer, Basil Hamden, our editor, Nick Quaz, Donald Bornstein helped us with some of the engineering and, and the editing here tonight. And I want to thank our control room engineer, uh, Nick Palm, for the great job uh, that he did uh, on, on this uh, special episode of rumble thanks everybody for listening we'll we'll see you in a few days we've we we've got another piece of this 25 million celebration uh coming up here i think sometime next week so so tune in for that uh in the meantime please take care of yourself be safe be well and uh we'll talk soon this is rumble and i am michael moore